morning church how are you doing well well my name is Dustin Ludwig I'm the youth pastor here at Greenville First I have the honor of stepping in and sharing the word this morning I'm excited about excited about it all Pastor Josh and Brittany are out of town taking some R&R getting geared up resting up refocusing for this next season of ministry and I'm just so excited to be here to share with you I want to actually just take a moment and pray for them as they're away if that's okay with you I think you know my wife and I, the, the reason we're here is because Josh and Brittany invited us into their home 10 years ago. We were in college. We were 20-some hour drive away from our family, and they were there. And they, they created a family, created a community. They're some of the most generous people that we know. So I just want to pray for them, that God would be generous to them as they're resting, as they're preparing to come back and just charge forward with us as a church. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you. Thank you for the leadership that you've blessed us with here at Greenville First and Pastor Josh and Pastor Brittany. I pray you would speak to them and give them fresh vision and energy and focus and just new revelation about who you are and what you're doing through these people and this community of Greenville First. Lord, we love you. We honor our leadership. In Jesus' name, we all pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for praying with us for that. As I said, I'm jumping in. We are in a series uh, called James. And each week of the series, we're jumping into a different chapter in the book of James. And to catch you up to speed, James is the half-brother of Jesus. And I'm sure you can guess which um, lineage, which side of the family James come from, comes from. Uh, church jokes, yep. But James is half-brother of Jesus. He's on the scene. He's around when Jesus is fulfilling his ministry and the early church is forming, but he's not a major voice until Jesus comes back from the dead, until he sees his brother resurrected and back to life. And I'll tell you, I have two older brothers. That's what it would take for me to believe them. Like, okay, now I'll finally follow you. I believe what you're saying now. I don't know about you and your siblings, if you're in the same boat. But James catches on to this thing. He's an early Christian, early church leader in the early Christian church. And he writes this letter to people who are Jewish but have now become Christians. So they're Jewish Christians. He's writing this letter. He's answering a lot of questions. He's giving a lot of wisdom. He's, he's guiding the early church. So we grab a hold of this book and we take the things that God has for us in it. And chapter three is what we're looking at today. So if you have your Bibles or the Greenville First app, you can follow along. Or if you're at home, you can do so as well. But it's broken up into two, kind of two parts in chapter three. The first part, James is talking that even the smallest thing can have the greatest results. And he's tying it to the power of our tongue, the power of our words. And the second part we'll get to later. But that's what James is breaking down. James is saying that there is a power and he warns of the power of our tongue. And I'm reading a book right now by John Acuff. It's called Soundtracks. And here's what he says about the power of our words. 
He says, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me, is a fun phrase to say, but it's not even a little bit true. Words are so powerful, they can age you faster than that one guy who chose the wrong chalice in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. If you know, you know. If you don't, ask somebody. He cites this study that, that they did at New York University. He says the researchers started the study by giving two groups of students the same assignment. Make sentences out of a collection of seemingly random words. Both groups proceeded to make as many sentences as they could, but there was something slightly different about the words the second group had been given. Hidden in that group of words were ideas that related to old age. Words such as bald, Florida, and wrinkle <laughs> were sprinkled through their collection. At the end of the word challenge, the scientists told the participants to walk down the hall to complete the second portion of the study in another classroom. But this is actually when the experiment started. Scientists secretly timed the students to see how long it took them to make the short trip. And students, to no surprise, who were exposed to the set of old-aged words walked slower than the other group. Just reading the words about being elderly caused a physical change. Nobel Prize winner Daniel Kahneman defines this as influencing of an action by an idea, or also called the idea motor effect. And it works both ways. Your thoughts and ideas can influence your actions, and your actions can influence your thoughts and your ideas. In fact, Neurogenesis tells us that every morning when you wake up, new baby nerve cells have been born while you are sleeping, waiting for you to tear down old toxic thoughts and rebuild better ones. Science tells us that your brain is waiting on you to be told what to think and what to believe. It's waiting to hear the words you speak to it. And James understood this. While James wasn't in a word study about words such as bald or wrinkle or Florida or didn't know about neurogenesis, James understood that there were realities waiting to be created based off of what we spoke, the power of our words. So James writes this letter, and here's what he says in James chapter 1, or chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Verse 4 says, look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder. Wherever the will of the pilot directs, verse 5 so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts great things. Teachers were so crucial to the early Christian church. So many people wanted to become a teacher for the wrong motives. And James is writing to them, saying, not many of you should become teachers. You need to be weary of the power of a teacher. Maybe you can think like, like, I got taken back. Can you think of a moment, maybe in middle school or elementary school or older or younger than that, when a teacher or a coach or a counselor took time to get to know you and understood what made you tick, what you were excited about, 
how you were gifted, and they spoke life into that. And in just a couple sentences, they were able to open up an entire new world to you. On the contrary, a teacher can, by negative words, negative statements, can send someone down the wrong course. Or if you're a teacher, an entire classroom full. Or if you're a pastor, an entire congregation full. James understood the power of our tongue. Because how much more important is that in the confines of the church? He's telling the early Christian church. One pastor giving a, a sermon that's pushing the, the boundaries or even a well-intended comment or pastoral conversation that is misguided can cause someone to make the wrong choice and miss out on God's best. James is saying teachers, those who speak, who influence, have power in their tongue. And he says, we all make mistakes, but a mistake with our mouths can cause so much damage. There's such a destructive nature to the tongue. And this is our first point this morning. Is number one is this, our words are warriors. Think about it this way. I pray that that sticks with you because it's been in my head all week. And every time I, I, I say something or I think that, that's a warrior, I'm, I'm letting out of my mouth for good or for bad. I don't know if you've seen Night at the Museum, these little guys come to life, right? You know what I'm talking about? Every single word you speak, speak is a warrior is a soldier directed to build up or to tear down. Every one of our words, as James understands, has power, and it's a warrior. He goes on and he says, not only that, but we need to learn how to bridle this thing. We need to learn how to tame our tongue. He says in verse 5, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life. And our tongue, he's saying, is set on fire by hell itself. I don't know if you remember the first time that you quoted a friend to your mom or dad and you quoted them because they said a word that you, you would not say, but it, you, you justified it because they said it. I remember that, my mom's eyes getting big, and I'm like, what? It's not my words, it's their words. It's his words, not mine. Can I tell you, this is James's words this morning. He's saying our tongue can be set on fire by hell itself for destruction. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. It could be influenced by the enemy. What does Jesus tell Peter in Matthew chapter 16, verse 23? Peter is gung-ho. He he's walked with Jesus for three years. He's seen all the parts of Jesus' ministry. And now Peter is excited and he's, he's going about his own business and he's taking his own action. And Jesus looks at him and he says, get behind me, Satan. Is Peter Satan? He's not. But he's being influenced in a negative way in his thoughts in his words, in his actions. James understood the power of this, so he writes this letter that we now find and we grab hold of and we, we check ourselves because one wrong word at the wrong moment can break a promise that can never be built up again. One wrong word at the wrong moment can ruin a relationship that will never be restored. It can give a first impression that you can never replace. And James understood and in summary, James is saying that if we claim to be Christ followers, 
if we claim to be made new, but our words and the way that we speak has not been worked over, we need to evaluate where we are in Christ. It's a, it's a heavy topic. I see what Pastor Josh gave it to me while he was out of town. <laughs> it's why I wore a bright shirt today. And before I stepped on service, uh, first service, a friend of mine, Chris Bowden, said, hey, Miami Vice, good morning. <laughs> you know, friends, Bible talks about a friend that sticks closer to a brother. You need those kind of people in your life. James's words, not mine. He continues. He says, Verse 9, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Imagine if I said, as you dismiss today, there are shovels waiting for you by your vehicle. As you go outside, find a shovel, find a hole that is dug around the property because this week, if I were to say, we, we dug in enormous holes in the ground and there is dirt around these holes, I need you to take this shovel and before you leave, would you please fill in the hole with the dirt around the hole? And imagine I left you all with your shovel and you were doing as I had asked because that's the purpose of the shovel. But then I come back from lunch and you're all in the hole digging dirt and flinging it out back onto our property. That's not the intention of the shovel. But James is telling us, what do we do with our tongues? There's such a contradiction. We, we, how good was worship today? It was amazing. And we, we praise God and we lift him up. And then in the same breath, we curse a person made in his image. When we talk about them, when we gossip about them, when we slander about them, when we cut them down with our words. Verses 11 and 12 say, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. In Palestine, in these desert places, in early Christian life, in biblical times, the placement of a town or village relied upon a spring of water, of fresh water. But imagine building your town or your village, and then a month in, this fresh water turns to salt water. That'd be trouble. But James is saying, that's not possible. You can't do that. And I thought, what's more important to us than a natural spring? To us, in our world, in our culture, it's fast food, right? So imagine you go to McDonald's, and you go through the drive-thru, and you get your bag, and you open the bag, and in the bag, you have waffle fries and Chick-fil-A sauce. And you're confused. And then you come again. This time you order. You sit down inside. And you get your tray, and there's a Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich and waffle fries and Chick-fil-A sauce. You would be very confused until you, maybe you think back and, you, oh, well, they, did, they took my Chick-fil-A app. They used my points, right? They used my rewards. And then you think even further, and you're like, wait, when I told her thank you, she said, bless your heart. <laughs> she said, my pleasure. Uh, this isn't McDonald's. This is Chick-fil-A. There comes a point, James is telling us, when we have to look at our nature and say, look at the words we're speaking. Look at the, the fruit that are com is coming out of our lives. We have to examine our nature. Who are we really in Christ? And James gives us a clear definition. How do we deal with this? How do we go about this? How do we move forward? He says the answer is wisdom. I can think of so many times in my life when I did not have wisdom. 
Randy stopped me after the first service and he said, I'm, I'm glad you didn't talk about not having wisdom in marriage. And I said, Randy, I have so many stories I could have shared, but I didn't go there. But I remember, I don't know if you remember, August of 2003. I know many of you, you weren't even born yet. Uh, but think of where were you August 2003? It was a Friday, sunny day, beautiful. I had the windows down and I had the sunroof open and I was driving home from my cousin's house in my dad's SUV. And I did not have my license. I didn't like leave it at home. I was 15. I didn't have my license. <laughs> so many times I look back, I'm like, I did not have wisdom. Science now tells us that our frontal lobe is still developing. So I'm like, yeah, my brain was developing at that point. I'm convinced that doesn't happen until like five years into marriage. But I was, I was pulling out of my cousin's driveway, and it's this back gravel road in northern Illinois, northwest Illinois, in the middle of nowhere. There's no other vehicles around, so I justified it, frontal lobe, you know. Um, and I pull out as fast as I can. I'm like, how could I do the biggest fishtail I've ever seen in my life with this vehicle? How cool would that be? Of course, no one's looking. I'm just a 15-year-old teenager. And I step on the gas, and I turn the wheel, and instead of like, well, the car starts sliding off the road a little bit. And instead of easing off the gas and just riding it out, I slam on the brakes, and I crank the steering wheel the other direction, and I shoot down into the ditch, and I fly out of the ditch. And while I'm in the air in the ditch, I like come out of my seat and it's like this matrix moment and the, my life flashes before my eyes and I'm thinking about everything that's going to go wrong when I get home and my parents find out about this and how I'm never going to get my license and, and then I land abruptly just poof, three rows into my grandpa's cornfield and the car is like wedged into the dirt and I get out and I look real quick and I'm trying to get out of there quick because it seems like my entire family lives on this one road. So I know soon enough somebody's going to be passing by. So I get in, I back up, I drive home, pull into my parents' house, open the garage door, pull the car in, shut the garage door. My parents are gone. It's Friday. I'm going to meet them at a football game that night. I look under the car. There are dirt clods just stuck under the car. And I'm grabbing them and I'm taking them out to the, our backyard and I'm throwing them out there. And then I look and there's corn stalks stuck between the wheels of the car. Like imagine 15-year-old you, okay? Don't judge me. Imagine you doing this. And I pull the corn stalks out, throw them out in the cornfield at our house. And I go to, the, go to the football game that night. I'm standing around a circle with my friends. And we're having a great time. It's a great evening until my cousin comes up. He says, you guys are never going to believe what happened. I said, what? He said, some idiot drove into Grandpa's cornfield. I'm like, yeah, some idiot. And, and he says, here's the thing. Their fog light broke off the front of their car. I'm like, oh, no. And he says, but here's the thing. Their license plate broke off, and they left it there in the dirt. And we picked it up, and my dad has it tonight. And my dad, and, and he's like, Dustin, your dad and my dad and Joe Payette, who's an Illinois state policeman, are sitting together. And, and, and my dad's going to show Joe Payette the license, and they're going to find out who did it. And I'm just like, are you kidding me? Like, you can't make this up. So right there, it was about halftime of the football game. EPC Wildcats were playing. I think it was Alina, and I walk over, and I see my, my dad, and I'm like, hey, dad, I don't want to embarrass you, but earlier when Uncle Larry asked you um, 
if you lost your license plate or if that was your license plate and you said that's not your license plate, um, that's your license plate. <laughs> and that's my fault and my frontal lobe is still developing, so have mercy on me. <laughs> but we do so many things in our lives that are not wise. The early church had so many things that they did that were wise. They, they made some wise decisions. The believers waited in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit as Jesus instructed them to do so. The believers started making disciples as Jesus instructed them to do so. The believers listened to the Holy Spirit and fully followed him. These decisions followed a common pattern of believing and trusting God enough to obediently and lovingly follow him. This is wisdom. This is your point number two this morning, is that wisdom orders our words. Wisdom orders our words. If every word that we send out is a warrior for good or bad, it's wisdom that will order it and direct it and command it. And James, like I said, he's now this early Christian church leader. And there's questions popping up. And people are trying to figure out the theology of all this. What does this mean that Jesus said? How do we live this? And one big question that keeps popping up, people are saying, why do I need to go to work tomorrow? Why do I need to take care of my family if Jesus is coming back tomorrow? This was a real issue in the early Christian church. And many other things like this were happening and being questioned. And there were disagreements and quarrels. And James, instead of directing each one individually, he put them under the umbrella of what would wisdom do. And James knew that the many problems and challenges that arise in the life of Christians can be sorted out through godly wisdom. So James continues in chapter 3. In verse 13, he says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to truth. This part of the chapter could be called a tale of two cities, two types of wisdom. This verse that James lists in verse 15, he says, this wisdom that comes down from, a, from above, it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and vile practice. And he lists these progressively worse because someone could say, well, my wisdom is just a little earthly or that word I just used is a little earthly or the way I talked about them, it was just a little earthly. But he says it's earthly, it's unspiritual, it's demonic. So James is not only saying your tongue can be set on fire by hell itself to cause destruction. He now says your mindset in this earthly wisdom comes from a realm of demons. His words, not mine. But that's the reality. This earthly, earthly wisdom, the original Greek points to something from an earthly dimension, not a heavenly one. It's chained here in this place in a fallen earth in a fallen dimension. It doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't take us anywhere. And in the original language, it's as if James is saying, when a person behaves like this, it's obvious that his soul has come under the influence of demonic activity. Again, he's talking about selfish ambition, jealousy, strife. And the problem 
the challenge with this is that it's when we're operating in these things that we feel like we're doing the right thing. It's when we let that word fly. In that moment, that's the thing to do. It's when we have that strife amongst us, it feels like that is the right choice, the correct choice for me to make. Because earthly wisdom has an appearance of wisdom. And so many Christians in the history of the church for thousands of years have fallen into this trap that we believe we're doing the right thing when we're causing quarrels, when we're following through with selfish ambition, when we're striving. There's strife amongst us. There's jealousy. I need to remind myself and encourage each of us that when something small becomes a major issue, we need to back up and re-examine what we're thinking and feeling. Because the enemy, as James says, may be trying to work in our mind and our imagination to divide us from the people that we need most. As a church, as Greenville First, as a community of faith, if something small rubs us the wrong way, and then we step back, we've got to stop before it becomes a big issue, and we've got to say, okay, is this me? Is this earthly wisdom? Is this influenced by the enemy to cause division? Is this God? We've got to reevaluate where we are. In your workplace, you can become frustrated. In your family, you can feel strife when those things arise. Let's check ourselves. Say, who's operating? What am I operating in right now? And here's the good news, because there's another city, tale of two cities. First, there's earthly wisdom. The second is this, verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So what does wisdom look like? What does real wisdom look like? God has called you here this morning, not on accident. But as God has called you into relationship with Christ, if you have relationship with Christ, he's called you to search for a relationship with Christ. If you don't have a relationship with Christ, he's inviting you into this godly wisdom. What does it look like? It's not a particular skill in negotiating. It's not managing. It's not leadership. It's not a certain degree. Wisdom isn't about education, but about action and character. The world can look at someone who's gentle and say they're just naive. They're soft. They're a pushover. They don't know how evil the world really is. N.T. Wright, he's an author, New Testament scholar. He says this. He says, but these characteristics have nothing to do with naivety. They are hard to acquire and hard to maintain. They can only be sustained at a great personal cost. They only appear where there has been a steady habit of prayer and self-discipline. Even then, they may take a while to show themselves. So church, we have a choice to make this morning. Which city will we reside in? Which wisdom are we going to reflect? The wisdom that orders our words for good or for destruction? Think of it this way. When you arrive at work tomorrow or you drop your kids off at school, or you go to the grocery store today, or you sit down for lunch. 
after church? Would you rather see people from verse 16 teaching your kids or bringing your food or approaching you down the hallway? Verse 16, people who are full of jealousy, selfish ambition, disorder, vile practices? Or would you rather see people from verse 17? Pure, peaceable, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere. Which of the two would you rather see someone coming down your way, down the street or down the hall or from the next table? Let me ask it this way. Which would you rather have as your neighbor? Which does God desire for the bride of Christ that he's coming back for? The question answers itself. But here's where we take a step and we say, how do I become that neighbor? How do I step into the godly wisdom that will order my words in a way that reflects Jesus the most? Let me just clarify, James is simply looking for consistency out of Christ's followers. He's looking for us to be fully surrendered to him, that we would be blessing only people, not blessing, cursing, blessing, cursing people, that we would be blessing only people. And this is a high standard, but here's the thing. If the gospel is the good news and it's salvation, if it's a new life, if it's freedom, if it's deliverance, all in the finished work of Jesus, then this should be our aim. Nothing short of it. So as we close today, I just want to take you down this list word by word to examine our own lives. I've been doing this all week. I can't get away from it. I want to encourage you to do the same as we do, as we hit on a word. Think about the people or the places or the times that give you the biggest challenge and ask God for strength. Ask him to help you. Ask him to give you perseverance. James says his wisdom is first pure. Is there a holiness about my life? Is my life set apart in the way that, that I live, in the way that I, I speak? Is it set apart from those around me? He says this wisdom is peaceable. Are you not quick to start arguments, but instead you want so badly the peace that God has for us? Is my life gentle? Am I open to reason? Am I labeled as unreasonable? Or do I have unhurried conversations with the other side of the table to hear their perspective? Am I full of mercy? Because a wise person will see the needs of others and seek to take care of them. Are there good fruits in my life? It's what comes out of a person's life that matters. Does my lifestyle reflect Jesus? Am I impartial? Do I look at the rich the same way as I look at those who are in need? And is my life sincere? Is there a lack of hypocrisy? Able to say, here's my mistakes. Here's the truth about me. And here's why we do this. Because as he said in verse 18, James promises, whether you're a parent, a grandparent, a student, a son, daughter, you're single, you're married, 
He promises in verse 18, the legacy of those who bring peace rather than conflict is a harvest of righteousness. Not just this little grain of righteousness, a harvest of righteousness. What happens when there's a harvest and you sow that harvest? There's another harvest and it lasts for generation to generation to generation. There's a harvest of righteousness for those of us who choose godly wisdom. And as God has promised, God will give wisdom to anyone who asks in faith. Can I encourage you? It starts with one invitation to relationship with Jesus. If you're in this place and you say, yeah, I I struggle with this and that and this and that and this, and you have not accepted Jesus into your life to make you new, Jesus wants to do that for you. God sent his own son to live a perfect, spotless, blameless life, to carry every sin we would ever commit, have commit, or will commit, all the way to the cross. Jesus went all the way to the cross for you so you could have life and life to the full. So we don't get godly wisdom by trying harder. We don't bridle our tongues and our words by just trying harder. We get it, we obtain it, we step into it as an invitation from the finished work of the cross of a perfect spotless lamb who was killed, crucified, dead and buried, came back to life to stand here today to say, will you receive that? Your first step is departing one of the tale of two cities, departing the wisdom of the world and our sin that goes with it. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes this morning? If that's you and you'd say, I need relationship with Jesus. I haven't received this gift. If that's you, would you just raise your hand? I would love to pray for you. I won't call you out by name. If that's you, just raise your hand. I'll pray for you. I see those hands. Let's pray together. Father, I just am so overwhelmed by your faithfulness. Every person here who may not have a relationship with you but wants to make that step, we pray this simple prayer and we say, Jesus, become Lord of my life. I recognize that I have made mistakes and I have sinned and I have fallen short. And many times I feel like it was just earthly or unspiritual, but actually, God, I realize there's a holiness about you. You have a high standard for me and I can't achieve that on my own. I need this gift of grace of salvation. So I receive that and I trust in faith that you're making me new. And even as we pray, many of us in this room, we may have a relationship with Jesus, but we realize we're functioning in a different realm other than God's best. So right now we put a stake in the ground and we say, we pursue godly wisdom that would order our words, every word that has power, that as Psalm 141 says, that the psalmist writes that you would place a guard at our mouth to guard the words that come from it. Fortify that, God. Help us to represent you and to do it well. In Jesus' name we all pray.